Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April the 26th, 2021. This is episode 2865 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a topic roundtable show. This really isn't driven by questions like a listener feedback show is, especially today. A lot of times my roundtables are kind of hybrids. They're things I want to talk about, and they're things that you guys have sent me. Almost all of this is stuff that I've picked up looking at social media, listening to the news, things that have gone on here, etc., cetera, uh, over uh, the weekend. And it's just stuff that I want to talk about to you, with you today. I want to talk about the fact that Texas COVID hospitalizations are falling like a rock. I mean, case counts way, way down. It's kind of like a, a really low plateau now. But case is 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 not really what's important. Um, how many people die? How many people go to a hospital? Somebody having COVID is no big deal unless they actually get really sick. Um, and when you when you have this plummet and then the media is silent, it tells us something. And I, on that note, I want to talk to you about like. I was listening to people talk about how New Zealand's beginning to slowly back open back up and what a great job they did. And I'm going to tell you why countries like New Zealand, um, they're going to have massive explosions in COVID cases eventually. Like, they're going to have to pay that piper. That'll be a quick segment. I'm also going to tell you about some new upgrades to my pond aquaponic system and where we're going from here as I kind of stood back and shot this little three-minute video that I did on Sunday afternoon yesterday of what I did yesterday. I started to realize... As excited as I was when I put this system in, this may actually be almost a new standard in like aquaponics, integrated livestock systems, etc. This is this is really starting to get exciting for me. And what I'm going to have to do with it is I have to like button down this each new piece as it comes in the door, um, and and not be one of these things. I'm a great starter, man. I, I I like to like investigate stuff, and once I know it works, then it's like let's try something else. Like no, let's finish that. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the exciting things going on there. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit of politics today. We keep I keep hearing people Biden's going to stack the court. Biden's not going to stack the court. That's not going to happen. I'm going to I'm going to say it again. That is not going to happen. It's not that I don't think they would want to. I don't think they can. I don't think they can get it done. I don't think there's a political will. I think there's a lot of reasons they can't. But I also think it's it's a head fake. I think it's a head fake because what I do think they can get done, and I'm not saying they're going to, but they definitely can get this done, and what it means for the country if they do it, D.C. statehood. D.C. statehood. And I'm going to tell you why it is a much bigger problem than court stacking. Because the court is not as conservative as you think it is. But if you can shift the entire body of the Senate and advantage one side of it, in perpetuity, you have a real problem. You have a real problem, especially with woke culture and the insanity that these people are coming up with now. And if you look at the liberal nature of D.C., uh, wow. So I'll talk about that and how the head fake is working. Um, I'm gonna, And I don't want to stick in politics, man. I don't like politics. I don't talk about it a lot. I think what you do in your own life matters. So we'll go with something as divorced from politics as possible after that segment. We're going to talk about my favorite edible flower why you should grow it, and some of the things you can do with it. And that'll be a good transition to get the ick off us after we talk about politics for a little bit. Um, then I'm going to talk about, people are going to make this one political if they want to. This is not political. This is I am talking about this next one 
for the purpose of understanding the mentality of half of this country right now. And I think it's very important that we understand these people because they are becoming more and more dangerous to our way of life and dangerous in general. So I'm going to talk about the shooting of a knife-wielding girl trying to kill another girl with a knife, and the cop shot the one with the knife. And some of the responses that I've heard from these people who are intellectually, you know, I don't even know the word for it at this point, like intellectually vacant. There can't be any logic, reason, or intelligence in the brain that says some of the shit these people are saying. Um, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, back on COVID, as we get close to wrapping up today, I'm just going to give you a real quick thing that came out of MIT. That's science. That's my science. That basically just says social distancing and the six-foot rule accomplish nothing. So that means that all of these small businesses who have gone out of business due to capacity limits um, or have had struggled incredibly difficultly with this and all the disruptions to our lives were fundamentally useless when it comes to social distancing. It just doesn't do anything. It just doesn't work. And this is specifically about indoors. Outdoors is totally stupid to have any restrictions. But indoors, you might as well be 60 foot, 6 foot, doesn't matter. Next, the key to real independent thinking is broad knowledge. And I want to talk about that today because I want to talk about how so many experts in a field, in a niche, get things wrong due to the lack of, of broad-scale knowledge and how you can encourage that in yourself. And an idea that I have, an idea that I have for a new degree program, a new college degree program, except it would be an independent degree study course that maybe somebody could do. I don't know. I won't be doing it, so it'll be a wide-open field. Before we dig into all that, let's start off with sponsors of the day. Number one, RidgeWallet.com. Identity theft is a thing. And now, thanks to uh, advancements in technology, in your wallet or your purse are a whole bunch of cards that have important information about you stored digitally, and that information can be acquired. Little parts, little pieces you can pick up for a few dollars on places like eBay. You can build sniffing systems that can literally go around wanding people's asses or their bags and gathering data, the same data you get when you swipe your card or you insert your card into a payment machine. Okay? That's the reality. Ridge Wallet protects you from that. When your card, when your IDs, et cetera, are ensconced inside a Ridge Wallet, that ain't happening. That data is not accessible. It's shielded. It's protected. Security is important. And Ridge Wallet not only provides that security, it looks great. It's a great way to minimize your life. I've been carrying one now for three years. I'm never going anywhere else. I'm totally satisfied with Ridge Wallet. You can learn more about them at RidgeWallet.com, and they do a discount for members of the MSB as well. Next up, Backwoods Home Magazine. I mean, guys, how hard is it for me to endorse, endorse these people? been reading them since 1993. been a subscriber since 1994. By the way, it's 2021. Amazing articles, amazing information. Check them out today at Backwoods Home com. They're an incredible group of people. Um, man, i got to tell you, a lot of the knowledge I share with you, a lot of the broad knowledge I'll talk about in my anchor segment today, a lot of it has its foundations in Backwoods Home over the years. Over 20 years I've been reading them. Give them a shot. You'll see why as well. Okay, so let's check. Well, hey, 20 years. It's what? It's uh, 17 years? That's pretty damn good, isn't it? All right. Um, no, geez. 1994. 2004, 2014, geez, it's, it's almost freaking 30 years that I've been reading these people. There's a reason. Check them out, backwardshome.com. All right, so I want to start off with how you know the media is not to be trusted when it comes to COVID. 
And it's very simple. Any fact that conflicts with their narrative is not discussed. It's not talked about. And in fact, they continue to criticize a thing that is working in the face of data saying that it's working. Specifically, what I'm talking about is Texas COVID, popu- uh, Texas COVID cases uh, and hospitalizations, um, test results, all of it. Now, I use a the official website where the state of Texas publishes all its data every day. It's updated by about 2 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon for the prior day's information. Uh, and it is built on a technology called ArcGIS, A-R-C-G-I-S, which allows for maps and all kinds of great information. All you know, like This is one of the best resources, and I don't really know if other states are using this level of explanation, but if you go, and I have a link to this today, and you can kind of see the case count information and the hospital information. They're on two separate uh, data sets graphs, etc. And if you go look at this, what it looks like is a complete and total crash. Like if this was a stock in a company, you would be running away from this company. Like that's how the declines look. They are steep and they are direct and they they seem to actually correlate with us opening the state back up. So Texas, for those that don't know, we com- we completely reopened over a month ago now. And according to the media, that was a horrible thing. I think Joe Joe Biden referred to uh, Greg Abbott, our governor, as a Neanderthal uh, when he did that. He said it was Neanderthal thinking that you know only basically only an idiot would do this when we're so close to victory, man. And what's happened is the rates have continued to go down, and uh, it, it amazes me that you even have to say this. Because the data is so easy to find. But these people lie in direct conflict with the data. They say trust science, but they don't trust the data that science is giving them. There either is or is not more cases growing in Texas, and there isn't. And the data says there isn't. And I've heard even on Texas radio stations, well, hospitalizations and case counts are up. You're like, no, they're not. I mean, literal lying. I mean, it's one thing when they, and we've kind of passed literal lying. Like you can only literally lie with something like this so long before you get called out enough on it that you start to look stupid. So now we've gone from just direct lying in the face of the facts and the statistics and the actual data and the actual information to the point where Anthony Fauci was asked on the floor of the Senate, why are cases in Texas going down? if what you say is true about what we need to be doing. His response was, I don't know. Now, guys, look. If the press were doing its job at all, and and part of the job of the press is to hold government accountable, then any journalist who was worth the salt in his blood would say, wait a minute, if the answer to a very important question like, This place has done the exact opposite of what you say needs to be done that's hurting people and destroying lives. This place has done the exact opposite, and they have not had the problems you claim they're going to have. And when we ask you why, your response is, I don't know. What the press should be asking, what the press should be shoving a microphone in this twat's face every second that they get a chance and saying, if you don't know the answer to that, why should we listen to your advice about the rest of this? 
but they don't because it fits a narrative that they have locked onto and they do not want to let go. And you can look at anywhere where people have done the exact opposite of what we're told we need to do. In, in, in Florida, I'm sorry, in the United States, that would basically be your three most prominent places are South Dakota, Texas, and Florida. They're, they're doing no worse. In fact, they're doing far better than many of the other places that have taken these draconian positions. Everything is down. Hospitalizations are down. Cases are down. Infection rates are down. And it's not because opening up makes cases go down. It's not because opening up suppresses the illness. It is because this is an illness. And this is an illness like any other illness that humanity has ever run into. It is not special. Since it was new, it did hit some demographics harder initially. And you're, you're basically, think about it this way. Think about a, a new strain of a virus being like a new stinging insect, right? You got a new stinging insect, like a bee, but it's a, a bizzle bee instead of a bumblebee. And the bizzle bee has a slightly different cocktail in its venom. And when most people get stung by a bizzle bee, It's like being stung by a bumblebee or a honeybee. It hurts and it goes away. But some people are allergic to bee stings to the point where a bee sting can kill them. Literally, the most dangerous animal in the world by deaths is the honeybee. More people die from honeybee stings than snake bites. right? Especially if you're going to go to an individual species of snake. It's literally the most dangerous animal in the world by death count. But we don't run and hide from bees. We accept that some people need to take extra steps and precautions around bees. If there was a new version of a bee with a new venom that we had never been exposed to before, a different small group of people would likely be allergic to it. That's COVID. That's COVID. But in this case, it's also that people who are stung develop a great deal of immunity to the, to the sting. And while you have this big spike in like horror of, oh my God, the Bizzlebee's going to kill humanity in the beginning, the natural progression of that would be you'd have a spike and it would drop off and maybe a second spike and it would drop off a couple waves like every other illness like this has ever occurred in humanity that wasn't you know something like the bubonic plague that actually killed the shit out of people. And people adapt and people overcome. You can lock people up. You can put people in masks. You can make all kinds of scary shit out of this. But in the end, that basic curve is going to look the same. And if we, you know, like I said last week, the, the lesson in history is that no one ever learns a lesson from history. If we look back in history at all of the pandemics of the past, especially when we're talking about low lethality threshold pandemics, You know, stuff that kills less than 2% even, which was, that's really, really high, by the way. And that's the number these assholes used in the beginning to try to scare you was 2%. It's not. It never has been. And we don't even know how small the infection fatality rate is because no one is willing to be honest about it. And there's a big difference between case fatality rates and infection fatality rates. And, and, and you know that you're not being told the truth when the good news is avoided constantly. The good, And I just invite you, for all, especially those of you that don't live in Texas, that don't live in Texas and you've heard horrible things about how bad things are in Texas, I invite you today, go to the website, pull up episode 2865, 
right? If you can't find it, just type episode dash two eight six five in the in the search box, and you'll find it with no spaces. That's the best way to find an episode. The whole word episode a dash and then the number, and that'll go straight to that episode for you if it's in the future. And I want you to pull up the Texas data. And if this is in the future, go look for the date of April 26th. That's the point I'm talking about right now, if you're looking at this in the future. And go see what it looks like. Dig through all the data. Look at the, look at the case rates. Look at the hospital rates. Look at the, the, the test result rates. Look at it all and see it's all in decline. And it has been in decline and it's remained in decline. And the decline is steep. And they don't talk about it. And when they do talk about Texas, oh, my God, those crazy Trump supporters down there. What does that have to do with the, with how many cases of COVID there are or are not? It doesn't have anything to do with it. They're the ones making this political. It's not political. Once you get past that, you should realize there's literally nothing you can trust these people with. Nothing at all. And if you, if you, if you are still at the point where you trust anything from them, I don't even know that I can help you anymore. Now, moving on from there, I just want to, I've talked about this before, I'm going to go real quick on it today. There are countries who did massive lockdowns, and because they were somewhat isolated, and because they put super controls on people coming in and leaving their country, they seem like they effectively managed COVID. All they've done is forestall the inevitable. You can't do this forever. And this is where Sweden was smart. What Sweden did was put some proactive measures in place, allow for voluntary things for people to do to, pr to protect themselves if they felt they needed to. They screwed up protecting old people for the first month that it showed up. They fixed that. As soon as they fixed that, their, their fatality rates plummeted, and they've kept going, and they have kept their economy open. And what the leaders in Sweden said, because they actually give a shit apparently about their people there, was... You To the rest of the nations, you can't keep doing what you're doing. You can't keep doing this. You're going to have to open things up. You can't stay like this forever. But we can do what we're doing for a very, very long time. And they were smart about it. Countries like New Zealand that were in, like, and, and I, I have a, a person that I have a, as a contact on Facebook. I don't really go on Facebook hardly anymore because uh, Facebook is scum. But He's in Australia, and he's very proud of the way Australia managed this. The disease itself is not going to go away. Natural immunity will be built up in any population that's exposed to it, and it won't be built up in populations that aren't. And sooner or later, countries like New Zealand, Australia, and other places where they've kept a lid on it are going to have to open their countries back up. And when they do, we're going to have a dry tender situation. It's going to be like when a match falls in the forest and it hasn't rained in a few weeks. It's going to go crazy. And then they're going to lock down again. And what, I mean, eventually you're going to have to pay the piper with this. You're going to have to get through it. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just a redneck hippie duck farmer. On that, I just want to talk a little bit about my new aquaponics and pond system and where it goes next. So for those that didn't see, the workshop we did over a month ago now. Is it over a month? Close to a month ago now, anyway. We put in a 8-foot by 16-foot pond, timber frame pond, but it's not very deep. It's only about 20-ish inches deep, it's a little deeper in some spots. And it, it was designed primarily to grow a water plant called water hyacinth as a feedstock for my ducks. And what this is designed to do is reduce my feed bill and give me greater self-sufficiency and independence from the feed store, right? Uh, this plant is a 35% protein plant. 
The birds love it, and it makes great compost. It also can be used to make ethanol. So I can make ethanol with it. I don't know that I will, but you can, which is an interesting thing to know. You can make fertilizer with it, and you can feed livestock with it. And almost every livestock that we keep eats this stuff. Like if you keep goats, they'll eat it, etc. So I kind of like, I, I heard that a few months before we built this system. And I watched a bunch of YouTube videos all over the world of people using it as feed. I watched, you know, homesteaders in Florida that just go out and gather it up, even though it's illegal to do so, which is stupid, uh, and feed it to their ducks and their, their, their chickens and stuff like that. But I also watched, like, entire little industries being developed over in Africa. And what they're doing, they have, like, it's an invasive plant there. It's on their lakes in the, in the subtropics and the tropics, like Lake Victoria, to where it's a, a, a physical problem. It, it chokes out other plants. Uh, it impa impairs waterways, et cetera. And they're just going out with, like, little barges and stuff, like hand-built little flat float barges, and just using pitchforks and just, like, taking as much of the stuff as they can. And they're doing everything from feeding it straight to livestock to – Removing the roots, composting the roots, taking the green, dr chopping, drying, and pelletizing it into animal feed. And some of the places they're doing this, they're doing it because they, it's not just that feed's expensive. In some places, they just can't get enough feed. And like being able to raise poultry is the difference between a pretty comfortable life and a pretty miserable one in some of these places. So that was really fascinating to me. And then, like I said, as I was doing that research, I found a couple places in Africa where they're doing the same thing, but they're fermenting it and making ethanol out of it. And then they're using that ethanol for like cooking stoves and stuff like that. Because these are places where people are cooking indoors a lot of times with charcoal or wood. And that's, that's not good for lung health, right? So they're having a clean fuel source in a place where like nobody will do it with typical Petro because it's so damn expensive. It's, it's incredibly expensive in these places. So this was all fascinating. So I started doing more research on this, and I found out that there have been studies done where they're using this plant, they're passing duck wastewater through a pond system. So these are more like not my type of operation, right? These are large commercial poultry operations with ducks. And ducks need water, and they make a lot of waste, and you have to flush it out, and it's basically duck sewage. Well, they're putting the water through these ponds to treat the duck wastewater. The water exits of the system incredibly clean, totally safe to release back into natural ecosystems. And then they take the plant that they used to do this with and they feed it to the ducks. They grow faster, their egg production increases, and they have less, not more, diseases. Well, I'm like, I'm, I'm totally building this at small scale. So that's what I built. I built this pond, and I built what I call Duck Mountain, which is like a mound where they can get up to it because I don't have enough fall and rise in my landscape to make it really drain well. And a 50-gallon tank, and they can go in there and poop their brains out, you know. And I think it's important people understand this. Yes, I have like 35 ducks or something like that. It's not their only water, and they don't use it that much. They pretty much use it in the evening. And I only drain that into my pond when I feel it needs more nutrients. So it's very much under my control. I put multiple other ways that I can drain it uh, to water trees. And they don't need it. So if I just, like, I don't need any of this slurry water for a week, I just don't fill it up. It's not like I'm stuck with it. And, but that's letting me dump that nutrient down into that pond. Additionally, I put in three very large 
like four foot by four foot water tanks up on a, a rack, and I run water from a pump from from the pond up into those, and they overflow back into the pond. That's my circulation to keep everything oxygenated. And I'm growing a plant called azola in those. I'm growing the water hyacinth in the big pond. I'm growing crawfish and shrimp and other things up in those tanks. What I did this weekend, actually Sunday, is I have three 50-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks. They're about a foot deep. They're about, I think, 60 inches long, a couple feet wide. Um, I use them for ebb and flow and a lot of other projects. I had three that I had taken off another project, and I built a single rack that's nice and low because the pond's low for a change here. Even if I could, Man, if I could dig a hole, this pond would be two feet deeper. It really would. It would be three foot deep, and it would only come up a foot above the ground. That would be just beautiful. Um, but I can't, so it's, it's limited in that. But I put these three, and you can go see the video. I put these three stock tanks in, and I set up ebb and flow with my timer method, where a timer kicks on, the pump runs, it fills them. They overflow from an overflow stack that sets the top height. And when the pump turns off, because the timer tells it to turn off, the water just backflows through the pump and the, the system drains. So there's no siphons to stick. This is like that system that I've been working on now for like a year and a half on steroids. It is a huge volume of water in and out of this system, 350-gallon tubs. Uh, and I don't have the media in it yet. I'm going to get the media in it. I'm Hopefully I'm going to be able to break away today and run to the hellhole known as Lowe's and pick up. I need three little sprinkler boxes to put in for media exclusion, and I want to get that system cycling. When I did that video and I stood back and looked at that system, I realized that basically this system is the accumulation of everything else I've done, all that knowledge coming together. And I think by the time the system's done, and basically it's being overflowed to water fruit trees and shrubs, it's producing fodder, it's producing feed, it's producing multiple aquatic uh, feedstocks uh, in the form of like crayfish, shrimp, minnows, etc. Um, it, it may really be almost a new standard. And I, I'm hesitant to say that, right, because like, I know I, I, I come across sometimes as being a little, like egotistical or whatever because I say what I believe with such conviction. And you think, that some bitch thinks he's right all the time. I, I really don't. Just when I, when I think I'm right, I talk about a thing, right? I, I try to talk about things that I know. But when I say something like setting a new standard for aquaponics, I realize that does sound kind of like I'm making a determination that I'm better than everybody else. And I don't think so. I actually think that what I'm doing with this system, other people are going to be the ones that look at it and go, well, if he can do that, then. And what we're ending up with, though, is a system that is relatively small in footprint that is incredibly, incredibly productive. And there's some more innovations that are going to go into it, like solar heating during the winter so that it doesn't completely freeze up. Or that even if it does freeze up and the pumps have to be shut down during the freeze, it doesn't freeze as hard. And it thaws out faster when we come on the other end. of it. Because we had a totally unexpected weather event this year. Like, this shit where we went below freezing for two weeks, and for several days we stayed in the single digits, and that's including our high temperatures, and we had multiple days where our lows were below zero Fahrenheit, for those of you in other countries. So that's really freaking cold here. Um, I don't know if that's going to become a typical thing to happen here. I don't know. I, I, I definitely ascribe to the theory of the Grand Solar Minimum 
That doesn't necessarily mean that is the type of weather that will become routine in Texas, but it means it's possible. It's possible. Even if it's not probable, it's possible. And when things are possible, they have a, a reasonable probability of occurring, I tend to build resiliency into them. So this is going to go a long way from where it is, and I invite you to stay in touch with it, ask me questions about it. I'll do more and more video on it. I'll tell you that I'm about to go on vacation. My vacation starts at the end of next week. I'll be gone for well over a week and a half. Um, during that time, I'll be running reruns, uh, rewinds, and I won't be putting out a lot of new content. And a lot of the stuff with this system and property walks and stuff won't really happen until I get back. So just, just so you know that. Um, next up, let's go po political for a minute here. Um, which I, I think is the political head fake of 2021 by the Biden administration. And I'm going to be clear that I don't think Biden's in charge of shit. I, I really don't. And I know that sounds like conspiracy theory, theory or whatever, but I think Biden's handlers are in charge and he's just there. He's, he's literally an empty suit president and that's just, that alone should scare the shit out of you. But they've made a lot of noise now and, you know, Biden appointed a committee to examine stacking the court and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we need four new justices because the country's bigger or whatever bullshit. The political will within the Democratic Party currently even with you know a razor-thin majority in the Senate, does not exist to get stacking the court done. It doesn't exist. So why so much noise over it? Because of the other thing that I think they do have the political will to get done, D.C. statehood. And this should never happen. And if, if it was completely reversed, and it would give Republicans two more senators in perpetuity, I would still say it shouldn't happen. I would still say it shouldn't happen. But all these people for it, if you gave them that and you said, hey, well, what if, what if DC was heavily conservative and it was going to be two Republicans in perpetuity? They would, oh, yeah, well, right. Because principle over preference. And said these people have preference over principle. The reason I think this can get done is I think there's less negative implications for those who get on board with it. I think that it's easier to make a case to people that this just should be. And this is the case they're making, that the people of Washington, D.C., that live and, live and work in Washington, D.C., are unrepresented in the Senate. They're unrepresented. Their vote doesn't count. They don't get a say. They don't have congressional representatives, and they don't have senators. I don't care. That's how D.C. was set up. That's how it was supposed to be set up. But you're talking about the hive of bureaucracy. And there is no hope that it ever moves any way other than further left all the time, more government, more government, more government. Almost everybody in D.C. benefits when the government gets bigger and has more power. So they're only going to go one way. That's not really the point, though. That's the preference issue. I don't want more liberal lunacy, therefore giving the liberals more power is against my preference. My principle was the purpose of D.C. being set up in the first place. It was for D.C. to be a place for the seat of the federal government and thereby separate it from the governed. If you live in D.C., you choose to live there. You choose to live there, you've, you've chosen to live there. That's the rules going in. But I really think there is, if I put this on a forecast as a salesperson, you, know, you say, what's the probability that this deal will close? This year, 70%. I mean, that's still 30% that it won't. There's always some things that can come in and nuke it, but 
I think this is the, the biggest power grab that they have the best chance of pulling off. And I think this nonsense about court stacking is the head fake. So you look over there while they get everything in place for this, and they pull the wool over your eyes and get it done. And it's also something that people are going to have less of a, a visceral reaction, more of a meh response to. And you can say it's not because you're informed, but let me tell you what they don't care about. They don't care about people who are heavily informed. Heavily informed people have used that information to make a decision, and they're firm in their standings. They generally take a lot to flip in their belief systems. They don't care about the people that don't care at all and never pay attention. They care about the people that half in, half out pay attention, and th that's your middle. That's your people that can flip their opinions about things fairly easily. They're moderately informed. Those people... Those people are the ones that you would, when you're deciding between these two plays, you would consider in this. They're the people that flip elections. They're the people that if you're in a place where it can go one way or the other, they cause it to go one way or the other. That's who they always play to, and that's why I think this is going to happen. And so what should we do about it? There's nothing you're going to do about it. Go sign petitions. Go vote. Go do whatever you think. You're not going to stop this if that's what they're going to do. So... Just be prepared for it. Getting away from politics, get the icky, nicky, icky, gross stuff off of us from that. I want to tell you about my favorite edible flower and why you should grow it and what can be done with it. What sparked this, I saw a post today on MeWe, and it's called 60-plus nasturtium recipes. And I was like, that's cool. So I looked at it, and I have a link to it in the show notes. I'm not really going to tell you about the stuff in it because you can go look at it and see all the different things you can do in nasturtiums. But I want to tell you a little bit about this plant. It is in the same family as as watercress. In fact, watercress scientific name is nasturtium something something, right? Uh, so they're they're both in the same family, and they have that peppery taste. Nasturtiums get these really big, round, beautiful green leaves on them. Uh, some of them are a little bit more postrate. Some of them are a little more trailing and vining, and they get these really beautiful, different colored flowers on them. And reds and yellows and things like that. It's a very thin, delicate flower. Generally lasts a day or two once it blooms, and then it goes away. They bloom, bloom very, very heavily. And the leaf and the flower are both edible. And if you live in a place where they have enough longevity to set seed, and I don't, the seeds also have a very peppery uh, character. You can take an assertion seed and throw it right in a pepper mill like black peppercorns and grind it, and it's very peppery. It's not the same as pepper. It has more of that kind of watercress-type quality. The leaves have the peppery taste. The flowers have more peppery taste. And to me, they're just one of the most amazing plants that most people don't grow, and if they do grow, they only see it as an ornamental. They are incredibly high in minerals and nutrients. Um, and again, it's just an incredible flavor. And I wanted to give you one of my ways that I've used it. And you can substitute something else for your protein in this, if, if, if what the protein I'm about to give you turns you off. But I made this for a friend who's kind of a foodie. And he was like, if that was available in a restaurant, they could probably make the restaurant famous off of this one kind of unique, trendy thing. So what I used for this was snails. Yeah, yeah, I know, snails. Like, Uh, escargot snails. You can buy helix snails. You can buy them in a can, pre-canned. And whenever I cook these things, I always cook them outside, like on my little outdoor oven with a, uh, a pan or something like that, because 
uh, I'm sorry, my outdoor stove, like my uh, camping stove, my camp chef, with, you know, like a cast iron pan, not cast iron pan, a steel pan, the carbon steel pan, some lodger, what I use now more than anything else. Because they do have a smell, it's kind of strong, and Dorothy doesn't like it when I cook in the house. So he was over, we're sitting out back, and, you know, we always have some drinks when he's over, and I had a really great Chardonnay. And so we poured some wine, that was unusual for us, we're more whiskey drinkers, but it was just like a spring day, it was just like one of those days to like do things a little lighter. So I'm thinking like, well, what goes with this? And the nasturtiums were just going crazy. So I went and I got like some of the nasturtium varieties I grow, the damn leaves are almost as big as your hand. Like, like take your fingers off with the palm of your hand, maybe even bigger. And so I got a bunch of those and I sauteed the snails because they're already cooked. They're canned just with butter and garlic and a little bit of the wine. And then each serving, I did three of those leaves laid together because they're kind of fragile, right? And three of those leaves and a sprig of dill and a sprig of um, chive. And then two of the snails did with the garlic and butter and wine sauce. And then rolled that up like a spring roll. It was one of the, to this day, one of the best things I've ever eaten. And my nasturtiums are exploding right now. I was like, I need to make that again. And it was just absolutely unique and fantastic. And like, you could do it with anything. I would just recommend a tender protein because the leaves are not, they don't have a lot of backbone. So you want something, if you're going to pick it up and eat it like a spring roll, you want something like when you bite into it, you're not going to like pull the meat out, like where it's chewy or tough. So like shrimp would be good. Especially like one thing you could do is almost minch a shrimp and like shrimp with garlic and ginger and chili in that would be through the roof. Chicken, a really good tenderized piece of chicken. Uh, the lemon chicken recipe that I've given out with my lemon. If you just go to, go to the site and search for lemon pepper, that chicken sliced in small thin slices would be fantastic. Anything like that, like using these as a, like a vegetable roll. Just it's it's something that you really you have to try to understand it. And if you're like you're not a spice person, like a heavy hot spice, this might be your uh, like in your threshold anyway. Yes, it's peppery. Yes, it's spicy. But it's a lot, it doesn't taste like wasabi, but it's like wasabi in that you eat this thing, you get that hit, you know, you get that nose opening, spicy hit, and then it's gone. It's not like capsaicin, like in your hot peppers, where you eat a raw piece of like a habanero, and 30 minutes later, you're still shoving napkins and milk in your mouth trying to make the, the pain go away. It's not persistent, is what I'm saying. So definitely a plant worth learning more about and growing and check it out. And those of you that are, you know, north of me, you know, more than a few hundred miles north of me, it's not too late to plant them. If you're in Texas, unless you have kind of a controlled environment, like a shady garden area or something like that, and even then just our ambient temperature, mine always kind of get to a point where, like, they just are so sad that I eventually just cut them back and use them for, you know, whatever's left of them because they're just not going to make it anymore. And since they're a big plant, they take up space. And if you kind of try to hold them later into the summer, you're holding back other plants. So they're like an early season treat for us. But a lot of you guys, you can grow them, you know, from the time frost stops until frost comes back. And they're really worth checking out. And again, check out the article. It'll give you a lot of great ideas, 60-plus recipes for nasturtiums. All right, next up, I want to talk about the recent shooting of this girl by a cop, and the cop happened to be white, and the girl happened to be black. She's a teenager. And, of course, it was immediately reported is another white cop went and gunned down another 
black child. And when we got the video footage of this, what was going on was very clear. The police were called because somebody was trying to stab somebody. The police showed up. One girl was on the ground, and a grown-ass man tried to soccer ball kick her in the head. The girl with the knife screamed, I'm going to stab the F out of you, bitch, and went at this girl trying to kill her with a knife. When you are trying to stab somebody with a knife, saying, I'm going to stab the F out of you, bitch, you're trying to kill them. Why? Doesn't matter at that point. I'm a cop, I've got a gun, I'm looking at this, and I have a choice. The person with the knife gets a bullet, or the person she's trying to stab gets stabbed multiple times with a knife and probably bleeds out and dies right in front of me. I'm sorry, person with the knife, boom, you're getting shot. The celebrity idiots came out and said it was a reckless discharge of a firearm just blasting away. It was expertly placed shots that saved a life or at least prevented extremely life-threatening injuries. That is cut down to the facts. That is the reality. That is what happened. I am as hard or harder than cops than 99% of people, even in alternative media. When I see an oath-breaking piece of shit officer, I call him exactly what he is. I am not fond of policing in general because they are used to execute force by proxy from the state. I have people in my family that are police officers. I respect them as men, but they also know the problems I have with their profession and the way it's used. Right? I try to be as equitable and fair as possible, and the only way I can be fair to an officer when he discharges his firearm, if you put me in the same situation and I had my weapon on me, would I draw it and would I fire it? And if I see one person trying to stab another person with a knife, I will put a bullet right in their forehead. And I will never feel bad about it. Not for the rest of my life. I'll wish it wouldn't have happened. I'll wish it didn't have to be me. I'll wish I didn't have to live with the fact that I took a life. But when it comes down to the decision, I am not going to regret the decision itself because there's only one decision to make in that situation. I have someone who is the aggressor trying to kill somebody who is not capable of defending themselves. You get shot. To me... Discharge of a firearm is when I'm protecting my life or the life of somebody else. Whether or not I'm wearing a blue costume with a special gold badge or not should not change whether or not lethal force is justified. And in this position, it was justified. But the narrative was white cop shoots black girl. As bad as that was, and we just ignore the fact that the girl she was trying to kill also was black. And trust me, if the cop had been black, they would still have the same narrative. But the pablum puking bullshit that came out of this on the other side of it, because first it was, well, this is just like every time. They just did this, right? They just got, and they talk like there's white cops driving around doing drive-by shootings of black people on a daily basis. That's how these morons talk. And this does not help fix the problem. This does not help us engage in a practical discussion to fix the problem or at least reduce the problem that we have here. No, because they don't want that. And the stuff that I heard people say, and I literally think, how can you possibly have the brain function to breathe and say this? I heard one person say that they adultized her. They treated her like an adult because they didn't take time to understand her as a black girl. While she's trying to stab somebody, saying, and I quote one more time, I'm going to stab the F out of you, bitch. 
that we just don't understand. We don't just don't understand black women. To me, if I was a black woman, I would find that to be the most insulting thing that one of these woke ass, sorry ass, privileged little white bitches, which is where most of this comes from, could possibly say about me. You're supp I'm supposed to say, hey, you know, if it wasn't a black woman with a knife, if it was anybody thing but a black woman with a knife stabbing somebody, it would be okay to shoot them. But if, if you understood black women, you understand that that's just what they do. That's what you're saying. The stuff that's come out of this has shown me as bad as I thought the addiction to a narrative was. It's worse. It's worse. And it's not just about not trusting the media anymore. It's about you have to understand that you can take a person who's spouting this nonsense. Well, he just shot her. He didn't need to, whatever. You can show them the body cam footage. You can show them video where you can see, again, a grown-ass huge man trying to kick a girl laying on the ground in the head and, and the other girl going after the first girl with a knife screaming, I'm going to stab the F out of you, bitch. Her, I mean, this is not like, if you, if you haven't seen it, go look at it. It's hard to look at. But this is not like she was standing 10 feet away screaming this. She was pushing her up against the car. She had the knife in her hand. She was going at her with the knife. The cop shoots her and does a, anybody looking at, I'm going to tell you this. Let's put it a different way. If this happened and the person that fired the gun was a private citizen, it wouldn't even be a thing. There would have been no question on the justification of the use of force. But because it's a cop, we have to create this narrative. And you can show these people that are married to this narrative this. They can watch and they'll still say, oh, he didn't have to kill her. Well, he didn't have to kill her. He could have let her stab the fuck out of the person that he, she was trying to kill. He could have let her kill. I mean, no one has to do anything. But he had a choice. Take a life to save a life or allow a life to be taken in front of him. And I'm going to tell you, if he didn't shoot and that girl stabbed it, then they would have attacked him for that. This was a no-win situation. And when you're in a no-win situation, the only thing you can do is the right thing, even though you're not going to win. And this one will go away because it, it's so far off their narrative. All they can do is cover their ass and then kind of like, let's get that. Let's find a new one to jump onto. But I, I, I do want to say this. We are in a dry tender situation right now. And there will be riots this year, and please be ready for it, especially if you live in the places where we already know they're going to kick off. There's a couple possibilities right now as to where this is going to go. We're going to get another one of these shootings that's less cut and dry that they're full of shit. Or we're going to get another one of these shootings or you know, abuses or murder by cop that is legitimately the cop was wrong. And if that happens, it goes. That's one option. The other option, and I think this is highly likely now, is in the uh, George Floyd case, you're going to get a mistrial, an appeal, something. There is already one member of that jury that has publicly stated they felt they had no choice but to vote guilty so the country wouldn't burn. I think the guy's guilty. I think the guy's guilty. 100%. I think he's guilty. I've tried, I've heard people trying to say shit like, he wasn't really kneeling on his neck. He was kneeling on his shoulder. No, he wasn't. No, we all saw the footage. He was kneeling on his neck. We had fentanyl in his system. I don't care. You don't kneel on a, a man's neck for over seven minutes on one side doing half side card, uh, um, 
uh, carotid artery restriction and giving the man an artificial stroke and not pay a price for the man's death. You don't get to do that. But if I'm an appellate court and a defense attorney can say, I have at least one juror on record saying they had no choice because they were terrified of what would happen if they didn't vote guilty. I'm going to get an overturn. I'm going to get something. And anything short of 100% in that case of what they want is grounds for rioting in their mind. And we have a very dry tender situation right now in this underpinning. And the media is culpable and the media wants it. The media wants it. The entire plan is to destroy what is beautiful about this country. Everything that is good about this country must be destroyed. I know that doesn't seem to make any sense, but it's true. And it brings us to our quote of the day, which I usually do in the beginning, but I, I saved it for here now. This is by Marcus Garvey. He said, A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And that is what is being done to our society right now. I am not a blind patriot. I do not worship the founders. And I know that this country made really great things happen and did very horrible things. I know that we're a mix of both. And I know that hiding either side or lying about either side or even obfuscating both, what it amounts to is you have this huge, amazing tree that is the United States of America. And despite our faults, it is literally the most amazing tree that's grown in humanity's history. There's a lot of bad parts of the tree. There's some rotted branches that have fallen off and caused harm. That's true. But the good largely outweighs the bad. And instead of discussing the tree for all its good and for all its bad, and accepting the good and accepting the bad, and trying to be better, the plan is simple. They're poisoning the ground and rotting the roots so that the tree will still look intact, but eventually it will begin to decay and it will just fall over and uproot. That is their plan. And you have to ask yourself why. Why? It's because these people believe that government should control everything. And the United States is the greatest success in the world of capitalism ever. And there's good and bad to capitalism. I'm the first to admit that. But when it comes to free markets, and I know people are like, we don't have a free market. I agree. But we have more free market in this country than just about anywhere else in the world. Overall, I can give you cut and dry instances where you have more market freedom in a place like Malaysia than you do the United States. I know a guy who made a bunch of money during the dot-com thing. He had like two companies he worked for during the dot-com boom. Cashed in his options both before the whole bust. Put away a few million bucks when he was still in his early 30s. And hauled ass over to Malaysia. He bought an island, small island, a couple acres. And I mean, this is an island like, you know, you can like, there it is. It's not something you need to take a ship to get to. Put in a disc golf course and some other cool shit. Hired a bunch of, uh, actually it's not, it's not Malaysia, it's Thailand. Hired some Thai gals and got some um, golf carts 
And basically, people play disc golf on this place, and these kind of pretty girls drive around in their golf carts and sell beer and wine and stuff out of the back of coolers in their golf carts. Doing that in this country would require a paper trail a mile long. It would require a you know a, a liquor license, all types of things. And he doesn't sell hard liquor. You know, it it, it fits in with what, what he can do there. But basically, he said, you know, you bribe a couple local officials and you're done, and nobody bothers you anymore. So they have, in that case, you can show there's more free market in Thailand than there is in the United States, right? However, across the broad stroke and across the last 200 years, there's never been a place where there was more opportunity for people to build businesses and have success and employ others than the United States. And it's created something that is incredibly resilient despite all of its flaws, And their belief is to get the type of control they want over society, they have to destroy that. And they're willing to. And this is the danger. This is where we get into a place where this happens. When you get into a point where more than half of your society, no matter how well they're doing, believe they're doing bad and believe they have no other hope, that's when socialism takes over. Socialism generally doesn't take over countries when the, when they're in depression It actually takes over countries when they're prosperous, but not prosperous for enough of the population. So what you do is you even take some of the people who are somewhat prosperous and convince them they're being defrauded, they're being hurt, they're being harmed. And their only solution is socialism. You call it whatever. doesn't matter what you call it, it's still socialism. And a country like the United States has so much going for it, you have to erase the past. You have to erase the past. Because I'll tell you what they want to do. They even want to erase the bad in our past to a degree. Because the bad in our past is not good for their narrative. You might think that it is. But the problem for you, if you're trying to destroy the fabric of this country, with not destroying a lot of the bad as well, is that people can say, okay, we did do that. And we changed. And we did do that. And we changed. And we did do that. And we changed. And hence, the system that we have, by and large, works. So you have to create the illusion that everything is bad now, and it was always bad now, and nothing's gotten any better. And that's what they're doing. And that's why they're spurring these riots on. That's why they're saying these asinine things. That's why you have media personalities. Even after seeing the footage of one person trying to murder another person with a knife, get shot, that he just shot her because she was black. I mean, that's, that's how you get here. And I'm telling you, we're in a very dangerous place right now. Between this and the work that the people in power are doing to try to change the way you eat, the way you live, the way you get educated, where you're allowed to live, how you're allowed to live, this is one of the most dystopian playbooks I've ever even examined. You know, outside of like science fiction and dystopian novels have nothing on this. This is far more dangerous than shit that you, you read in these books and all because it's far more possible for it to be gotten done. History is repute with it being done in other places in the world that didn't think it could happen there either. They didn't think it... We hear about these countries where this kind of shit happens, like Venezuela, like Argentina. We look back to what happened with Nazi Germany. None of these places thought, oh, it can happen here. They all said it couldn't. Look at the Balkan Wars. You know... Places like Sarajevo were incredibly prosperous places before that happened. These people are playing with something. Some of them know exactly what they're doing. And they're, they are the true psychopaths. Many of these people think you can do this 
and you can still prosper. These people are ill-informed and delusional, and they're dangerous. Please be on alert for what goes on this year. Because my gut is, when riot season kicks off this year, and it will, it will be worse than last year. It will be worse than last year. Okay, more denial of science. MIT has a study out. They told us what many of us already knew. The six-foot rule for social distancing indoors is largely useless. It's largely useless. There's, there, you either have your, your venues closed, or if you open them, you might as well just let people use them to normal capacity. I'm not going to go deep into that because we're about at an hour already today almost, and I want to kind of get wrapped up. i got some stuff I need to get done around here. But I will say there's a link to the study. Again, it's out of MIT. It's not some dude with a medium blog. Um, there's, there, there's becoming less and less evidence for this narrative, and yet people become more and more convinced of it. I completely understand why people believed in it in the beginning, the first couple months of this. It was new. It was scary. You know, everybody probably knew somebody or at least knew somebody that knew somebody that was hit really hard with this or died from it. Because there was enough that that was the case. The media, of course, you know, whipped it into like a, a thunderstorm because it was bad for Trump. So I get it. But there just has to be a point where anybody that thinks at all for themselves would look at the basic data that we've had and go, okay, they're lying. They're lying. And this is what I, I really struggle with. People that think, well, they lied about this, they lied about this, they lied about that, they lied about this other thing. They're lying about this now. But I trust them about these three things. Good Lord, stop. Stop trusting these people at all. Trust is their power. When they lose trust, only then will they have to start making cases with logic and reason and fact. As long as they have at least half the people trusting them, it works perfectly. In fact... They're better off with 51% people trusting them and 49% people not trusting them than they are with, let's say, 85% of people trusting them and 15% not. Because even a unified people, unified to the wrong ideals, will eventually come to the conclusion those ideals are wrong. Because they don't have anybody push, to push back against them. And eventually, like, they get steamrollered and they realize, hey, wait a minute, none of this makes any sense. But as long as you have division, you can blame the other side when things don't work out your way. Well, you know, we're still having COVID in the places we locked down. Oh, those are people that went to Florida. The people who went to Florida, they came back and they caused this. Okay, well, Florida's doing fine. And they just ignore that fact. And here's where this all comes from, and it's what I wanted to finish with today. And it's, it's, it's my call to all of you to continue your learning in multiple disciplines. The key to independent thinking is really broad knowledge. And this is why very smart, very intelligent experts get things wrong as soon as they're five degrees outside of their area of expertise. You have people that, re like Peter Schiff, really knows his shit about basic economics and silver and gold, and then something like cryptocurrency comes around, shits all over it for a decade now literally knows nothing about it, refuses to become educated about it, and just keeps saying it's going to crash. Bitcoin, the most successful financial uh, network ever created in the planet, period, measured in any way you would measure that. And it's, 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 he's saying the same stupid shit he said about it 10 years ago. Why? Because he doesn't have the information. Not because he's stupid, 
Not because he's like some of these brain-dead morons we're talking about today. Because he really knows what he knows, but he refuses to accept what he doesn't know. And what happens in, the, in these, 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 these niches, especially today, where anybody, even a guy like me, can create a presence for themselves. If they're good and they work hard, they can create a presence for themselves. Most people do not take the approach that TSP does. When you first heard about the show, you probably thought, well, this will, I'm going to look at this. It's going to all be about food storage, water storage, survivalism, guns, ammo, bullets, and band-aids, right? That's what this is going to be about. And if you stuck around for any length of time, you started to realize, man, this is a very, very diverse knowledge set. This is all over the place. One day they're talking about how to take care of chickens. The next day they're talking about digital privacy and encrypting your data. The next day they're talking about how to build a business. The next day you have a guest on, and that guest is talking about coming trends in climate and food. And then the next day we have a guest on that's talking about the most advanced privacy cryptocurrency ever created. Like, it's all over. It's all over. There's a reason. Everything that I've done here is to try to encourage people to build non-brittleness into their life. You can't be a specialist and do that anymore. You can't. Because the specialist way to having the things you want and be able to make decisions well revolved around a couple things. One, stability in the world where you could go to work somewhere, stay in that job for 30, 40 years, get a gold watch and retire. Those days are long gone. Long gone. Like 25, 30 years gone. So you don't have that. The other is you have to be in a situation where the majority of the information sources are being honest with you. That way, when you know you don't know, you can look at the information being provided and take it at the surface for being what it is and make a relatively informed decision without becoming very informed about any individual topic. Well, as we've discussed today, and this is why, knowing this was the anchor segment we've discussed this, the, the sources of information are not being honest with you. They're giving you conclusions that are in direct conflict with provable fact So at that point, you know that information is not, not honest. So this is what we have. And then we have the ability to find things that confirm your bias at a higher level than has ever existed in society. So it's wonderful that with the Internet, we have more information available to us at our fingertips than the ancient you know, Library of Alexandria times 10. That's good. The problem is if you start with a pre, a presumption that you are sure about a thing and that that must be the way the thing is and you, you trick yourself into believing that you're doing research, but all you're doing is seeking to confirm your belief, you will have no trouble doing so. You will have no trouble doing so. The reason I think that I take a moderated approach to a lot of these things that very smart people come to different conclusions than I do, such as I love, I'll tell you what, I, I, I love the work Christian, Ice Age Farmer's doing so much. We're talking about bringing him into the goose group and making part of the team. I want that diversity of expertise. But when the only thing you pay attention to is climate and the food supply and what the evil bastards are doing, you will tunnel vision yourself into one possible conclusion, and not just a conclusion of the intent, but an expectation of the result. When you have broader knowledge, then you realize there are all types of moderators. This is, you know, this, it's a very similar situation with climate change. Well, you know, the, the only conclusion is that the temperature is going to keep going up. Without understanding the, the climate moderators, then you don't understand how ill-flawed that viewpoint is. You just can't because you, you don't know what you don't know. And if God help you, you're 10 years younger than me. 
and every day of your life in your education system, you had this narrative reinforced in media, education, etc., it's very difficult to pull back and see anything other than what you've been led to believe. And I think we've gotten to a point now where certain things that are not supported by facts, logic, and reason, at least not to the, to the level that they're claimed to be. Like, this is possible, but we don't know yet. There's many situations like that where, like, this is possible, maybe it's even probable, but we don't know yet. But you've been so convinced by a narrative that has an agenda and without the broad knowledge base to bounce it off other realities and look for patterns, you become so convinced of it, it would be like if I came out to you and said, ladies and gentlemen, I have to review to you today, reveal to you today, the most nefarious conspiracy ever done to the people of the United States of America. Right now, I'm looking at a coffee cup. That coffee cup is orange, except it's not orange. The color that you have accepted as orange is actually Nanya. It's Nanya. And there's a conspiracy 200 years ago to change all the usage in the, the English language of the word orange or Nanya into orange. And that color is really Nanya. And orange is a completely made-up word, and it was done intentionally. You'd think I'd lost my mind, and I would have, right? But let's say I was able to come across like original books using this other word in such a way that there would be no way other to interpret it than they're talking about orange. Or that maybe orange was a term for the fruit, not the color of the fruit, and it was changed because I don't know why. It doesn't matter for this analogy. There are people that no matter how much evidence you gave them would say that's just conspiracy theory. That's nuts. There's no possible way that can be true. And I, if somebody told me that shit, until you showed me proof, I'd be like, you're nuts. right? It's up there with the earth is flat. These people live flat earthers. And my, my God. right? Or some nonsense I heard out of Jeff Berwick from the Dollar Vigilante recently that nuclear bombs aren't real. They don't exist. Like there, There's things like when you hear something like that, your immediate reaction is, what an idiot. Like that can't possibly be true. And you want to prove it? Then give me data. But people will grab onto these belief systems and they will accept them because they've been told by authority that they've been conditioned to believe that they're true. And this is what I think we need. We kind of need a new educational paradigm. And hopefully I'm doing a good job with it here at TSP. But I think it would actually be interesting to have an educational program developed specifically for broad-based knowledge that is devoid of bias. You know, and one of the things I think we would have to make core to that is that science is a process. Science is a process. Science is not an institution. Science is not an authority. Science is a process. And that is something that 25 years ago, nobody would have got triggered if you said that. I was taught in freaking fifth grade that science is a process. That's what I was taught. In government schools, I was taught science is a process. In fact, the only reason to trust anything that comes from science is because it is a process. And that unless you use the process, it's not science. Today, we actually have papers written saying that it is a problem that independent thinking people have determined that science is a process rather than an institution. That's actually been written down 
by what we call scientific authorities, this is a problem. These people are using data, our own data, against us. This is wrong. We're the ones that decide. No. Science is a process that anybody can engage in. And if it's not that, it's not science. That's one of the core things. But we need people to understand, like, how did wars actually get started? The real reasons behind them. How they were, how financial entities funded both sides of wars. We need all of this stuff to be part of a more organized educational curriculum. I try to bring you what I can in the format that I use, but I mean, I'm actually thinking that, like, there's a place for kind of like, I don't know, Broad Knowledge University or something like that. Just an idea I thought I'd throw out there today. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, remember, one of the things you can do to help support this show, become a member. And even if you're like, I think this Jack guy's a dick. I don't like him at all. What an ass. You know what? If you buy stuff for, like, homesteading, gardening, plants, seeds, silver and gold, like, tactical stuff, like, tactical, practical, everything in between... If you buy stuff that we talk about here, you should be a member anyway, even if you think I'm a dick. Because you spend 50 bucks a year, you get like $100, $150 a year in discounts. That's money in your pocket. So that's, that's my pitch for MSB today. It's profitable, so become a member. Next up today, remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. The beauty of that is it don't cost you any extra money. You were going to buy something anyway. You just go there first. And then when you start your online shopping there, you help us out no matter what you eventually buy. Today's item of the day, though, because I do have item of the days that I bring around to you guys, you know, every day, most days anyway, most work days, is the Octave Aqua Submersible Pump. Little 550-gallon one is kind of my, my go-to on this, but there's some smaller ones, some larger ones. There's like four or five in this line. They are the most reliable, longest-lasting, dependable, and e easiest-to-service pumps that I have found in their price range. They're not cheap, but they're not expensive. Um, a same size pump that like a really cheap version would be like 25 bucks. Their pumps like 50 bucks. So they cost twice a super cheapo, which if it lasts three times longer, you're already positive on the money. And my, my experience is they last longer than that. And the ease of service. I really need to do a video on how you service these things when they get clogged up and stuff. Cause it's, it's so super easy that even I can do it when I'm tired and angry and I don't want to have to. Um, but the reason I brought them around today, they're on sale. That, uh, that $50 pump's on sale for like 32 bucks or something like that. So that's why I brought it around today. Um, I do think we're, we're in a world where supply shortages are going to persist and become more and more probable throughout 2021. And we won't see real rectification in that until like early 2022 into like summer of 2022. It will get worse until it gets better. And I can't guarantee you it'll get better, but I think that's like, that's being optimistic. So don't run out and buy five of these pumps today because, you know, you might not be able to get a pump someday. But if you know you're going to build a project using pumps like this this year, then I would take advantage of the sale while they're around before the price goes up because it probably will. That's kind of how I'm, I'm positioning this. I also wanted to tell you something else about these. The 550 will take a half-inch male-to-female threaded you know, thread on the, on the male side, uh, slip on the female side, it'll screw right in to the top of the pump. The, 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 the fittings that come with the pump are more designed for you to put like a hose with a clamp on them. I don't like hoses with clamps. I like use PVC in my systems. It's rigid. It goes where it's supposed to. It just works. And 
Sooner or later, I'm going to have to cross over to PVC in most of my systems anyway. So why does it just go straight from the straight from the tap? So with the 550, the one that I have featured, that half-inch thread-to-slip adapter will screw right into the fitting, and a half-inch piece of pipe goes straight into it. And if you wanted to use larger pipe, though I don't know how much advantage there is with a pump with this capacity, you could use a, um, a bushing to up it to three-quarter or to up it to half, uh, I'm sorry, one inch, right? Some of them don't. I think it's the smallest one, has a weird thread, and there is no fitting natural PVC Schedule 40 fitting that goes into it. And I think the largest one's like a 5-8, something that's just that it doesn't go in. So it's like the two in the middle, a half inch goes right into, and the two on the opposite side, the largest and the smallest, don't work. What do you do? The fitting that comes with it, instead of getting a hose and trying to figure out how to get from one to the other or whatever, it's like a bayonet fitting. Like it's designed for a hose to go on there and clamp. Take a half inch straight coupler and take some J, JB Weld Water Weld, which is another product that I recommend. Make, mix some of that up. It's a, an epoxy. It's a putty epoxy. Mix it up. Put it all around that bayonet connector. Take your uh, half inch straight coupler. Push it on there and form a bead around it and let it cure for a day. Now a half inch pipe goes right into it. It'll hold just fine. It'll hold just fine. You may want to rough up the surface of the bayonet fitting with some uh, sandpaper or whatever to get a little bit better adhesion. I have not had any of them come apart on me. So I don't know that you need to. And it's not something with a lot of stress on it on a daily basis. Once you put it in place, it's kind of in place. But uh, definitely check these things out. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. We're in Bob Seger week. We're kind of in a theme month this month with our songs. This song is called Turn the Page. And it's about life on the road. And it's about all the stresses and sacrifices of being like a rock star. And like when Seeger came out with this, like he was really hitting his prime in his career. And everybody thinks it's so glamorous and, and what have you. But you give up so much. And oddly, it makes me think about something my wife and I have been watching on Netflix that I didn't think I would like. But if your wife wants to watch something, you know. And the wife, like my wife does so much for me, like that's an easy thing. Like, okay, we'll watch this. It's called The Crown. It's about Queen, Vic, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth. And it starts right before her father died and she took over as Queen of England. And it's one person's journey across this incredible array of history. I mean, this is going back to the 40s up till now and she's still there. And the struggles within their family. And I know it's easy to look at them and think they're so privileged. And yeah, yeah. But I think that much like this song tries to convey that you think you know what it's like to be somebody, but you never do until you really see or experience it for yourself, I've, I've gotten kind of a new respect for what it takes to be in a position like that. And what, I'm com what I've come away with is there's a lot of assholes in the royal family, but I really think that, like, Queen Elizabeth probably didn't really want the job. And she did it out of a sense of duty because of what her uncle did in abdication of the throne and what that did to the country. And I'm not a pro-monarchist right now, right? I actually think that we're reaching the end of the usefulness of, of situations like that. And I wonder if it's really necessary. And in fact, that's where I'm coming from. You're talking about people that are privileged, tons of money go into things for them, 
but they just can't live a normal life. And yet the lure of the privilege and the money and the titles and everything is so high that they can't walk away from it, most of them. And you wonder if we'd just be better off if we didn't have things like that in the first place. But I'm glad we have rock stars. I really am, because I love rock music, and I love this song. Turn the Page by Bob Seger, with more Bob Seger coming to you tomorrow and for the rest of the week. On a long and lonesome highway, east of Omaha, you can listen to the engine moaning out as one lone song. You can think about the woman or the girl you knew the night before. But your thoughts will soon be wandering The way they always do When you're riding 16 hours And there's nothing much to do And you don't feel much like riding You just wish the trip was through mm. See, here I am On the road again There I am, up on the stage, here I go, playing star again, there I go, turn the page. Well, you walk into a restaurant Strung out from the road And you feel the eyes upon you As you're shaking off the cold You pretend it doesn't bother you But you just want to explode Most times you can't hear them talk Other times you can't All the same old cliches Is that a woman or a man And you always seem outnumbered You don't dare make a stand Here I am On the road again There I am on the stage Here I go Playing star again There I go Turn the page Out there in the spotlight You're a million miles of energy you try to give away as the sweat pulls out your body like the music that you play later in the evening as you lie awake in bed with the echoes from the amplifiers ringing in your head You smoke the day's last cigarette, remembering what you said. I 